urge you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. My text indeed does begin with verse 14. I'd like to begin reading with verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 10. Now this is a section of Scripture where the writer of Hebrews is clearing up a pretty severe misunderstanding that uh, the readers of this book would have had. So you know that Hebrews was written to Hebrews. So Hebrews is another name for Jews. And uh, the people that he's writing to were Jews who had professed faith in Christ But now they were facing some uh, persecution, probably from the Jewish community. It may have been from the Gentile community as well. But they were facing some persecution. And uh, some of these persecutions were coming in the form of attacks on the doctrine. So the one that we'll deal with this morning, at least in the introduction, is that some of the the Jews who had not become Christians were saying Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah because he died. And the scriptures teach that the Messiah would never die. This was a commonly held misconception. You can read how it comes up in the life of Jesus in John chapter 12 when some of Jesus' detractors say to him, we have heard from the scripture that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man will be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? The fact that you're talking about dying is evidence that you are not who you say you are. You're not the Son of Man, a name for the Messiah. This, similarly, was probably behind uh, Peter's rebuking of Jesus when he said that he was going to go to Jerusalem and there he would be crucified. And Peter takes him aside and says, Far be it from you, Lord. Uh, That is not what the Messiah is going to be doing. The Messiah will live forever. And so when Jesus' disciples began preaching the message of Christ crucified, there were two major reactions. From the Jews, it was thought to be, it was a stumbling block because they had thought the Messiah is not going to die. Therefore, Jesus could not be the Messiah. Not only did he die, But he suffered a very shameful death, the death of Roman crucifixion. That just disproves that Jesus could be the Messiah, and you people who are following Jesus need to reconsider your commitment and come back into the fold of Judaism. The other response was from uh, the, the Gentile community when they said, well, that's just foolishness, that God could accomplish all that you say that he accomplished through this man who was nothing more than a carpenter from Nazareth in Galilee. But it's especially with that first reaction, that first objection, that this passage of Scripture deals. How could the Messiah die? And in chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews explains, Jesus is the Messiah not in spite of the fact that he died, but because he died. So let me explain that to you, is uh, pretty much where we dive into the passage right here. It says in verse 10, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, 
that's God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So there he's, he's, he's punching on that, that misconception. It was fitting that God do it this way. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now, if you've got the ESV, then you have a little note there, and it says that in Greek it just says all of one. I think the point being made here is that they are all of one family. That's, and that's the word that the NIV translators choose to supply. But in the Greek it just says they're all of one. The point is that Jesus, he who sanctifies, and us who are being sanctified are of the same race. We are all human. And that makes sense for the next thing. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So this is a passage of Scripture that illustrates that Jesus was, was among us as one of us, a brother. Verse 13 explains that he, he was in some ways on the same footing with God that we are. We are, we are united with God by faith or by trust. Jesus said the same thing. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. All of these are ways of saying we, Jesus became fully human. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things. That is, that he was a real man. He had flesh and blood. And here's why. Here's why he had to become a real man. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, that sounds like a bad thing that we're being delivered from, and in one sense it is, but in another sense it's a blessing to have a fear of death. And that's why I have titled this sermon, The Blessing of Being Afraid to Die. But let's continue. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's why his being an angel wouldn't have been sufficient. He had to become a man. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's my intention to handle this passage of Scripture in two headings. First of all, the blessing of being afraid to die. And then the sec secondly, the blessing of being delivered from the fear of death. So first of all, how can I say that it is a blessing to be afraid to die? When I was about eight years old, it was in the spring of 1969, there was a stray dog that came to live at our house. And after she had been there for a short while, she gave birth to several puppies, all of whom died except for two. 
a little black and white dog and a little brown and white dog. We gave the brown and white dog to my grandmother and we kept the black and white dog who had a little face shaped like a bear and so we named him Bear. And so at eight years old, I had a companion and uh, I was always traipsing about in the woods and, uh, and, and Bear was always at my side. So all through my childhood playing in the woods and then through junior high and high school, Bear was my companion. And uh, then I went away to college, and, but when I'd come home, then Bear and I would go out and traipse the woods together. And he almost saw me all the way through college. He lived to be about 14 years old. And I think it was in the, uh, the Christmas break of my senior year that uh, I came home, and after initially greeting Mom and Dad and my sister, if she was still living there at that time, I I said, where's Bear? Uh, they got quiet, and they said, well, we, we had to put Bear down. He, uh, he had gotten so he couldn't see very well. He was almost completely deaf, and Dad found him up here on the road, and when Dad called him, he didn't know which direction Dad was, was and he was just confused, and so we knew that we had to put Bear down. And... Uh, when you lose a faithful pet like that, then you console yourself with thoughts like these. Well, he had a good life. Maybe he lived long. My dog lived a long time. Uh, maybe you can't say that about your pet that died, but often we can say that. Had a good life. Uh, if, if the pet's death was preceded by some kind of suffering, then you can say, well, at least he's out of his suffering now. And that's the way we console ourselves about pets. Is that the way that we console ourselves about people? Sometimes it is. Sometimes that's all that we're left with. Someone has uh, lived his life. Maybe it was a, a good life. Maybe he enjoyed good health, was sick at the end, but never, ever turned to the Lord. And... Uh, <clears throat> When we are at the funeral and when we're thinking about our departed friend or our departed loved one, we almost dare not allow our thoughts to go to what happens on the other side of death. And so we just have to console ourselves with, with that departed one, much in the same way that we would console ourselves about a dearly loved pet. But that is a... That's a band-aid on a cancer that goes soul deep. There is something on the other side of death that makes a person's life either a colossal waste or a wonderful blessing beyond description. Death is not the end of human existence. I say that the fear of death, the blessing of being afraid to die, is that if you, are, if you are scared enough of what is on the other side of death, then it may cause you to seek the remedy that is prescribed here in this passage of Scripture. But before we get to the remedy and how it can be a blessing not to be afraid of death, let's think about why it is a blessing to be afraid of death. And so, first of all, it's a blessing to be afraid of death 
in contrast to many prevailing views that we encounter in our world about death. One view about death can be represented by an ostrich sticking his head under the sand. Now we know that ostriches don't really do this, but uh, throughout, for many years, it was thought that when ostriches were uh, afraid and couldn't get away from his enemy, then the ostrich would just plunge his head into the sand. And that's the way many people treat death. Many people treat the other side of death like that. We all know that we're going to die. We all know that sooner or later, that enemy chasing the ostrich is going to catch up to us. But we put our head in the sand and say, I'll just think about this later. <clears throat> Some of you will have read Margaret Mitchell's no <clears throat> novel, Gone with the Wind, or maybe you saw the movie, I can't remember if in the movie she says this as often as she does in the book, but in the book she often says, I'll think about that tomorrow. I'll just think about that tomorrow. And that's the perspective uh, on death that many people have. Tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll take care of these things. I know that I need to get right with the Lord. Maybe tomorrow. Today I've got things to do. And tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. It's always I'm going, I'm going to take care of it tomorrow. And that, that idea has been like a candle that has lighted fools the way to dusty death. I'm quoting from Shakespeare's Macbeth. I'm going to take care of it tomorrow. But then he says that just before he dies. And sadly, that's the way many a person who sticks his head in the sand about death, that's just exactly the way it ends up, that suddenly death overtakes, or maybe, maybe confusion of mind overtakes, and the clarity of mind upon which we counted that we would be able to take care of these things one day is taken from us in, in Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia. I remember hearing a preacher tell a story one time about his being summoned to the hospital bed of a woman who was dying, and she had lived a rough and rugged life, and she was afraid to die. And he said, well, I just, <clears throat> I went to the bedside, and I did, I did the only thing I knew to do. I just preached the gospel to her. And I said to her, and if you will repent, God will forgive you. Will you repent? And she said, so help me, preacher, I can't. A lot of people have the idea that repentance is something you can just summon up like that. That faith is something that you can just summon up like that. But when you have spent your entire life trying to get away from God, when you've spent your whole life living frivolously, and foolishly, then you're like those foolish virgins who heard the sound, the bridegroom is coming, and they found out that they didn't have any oil for their lamps. And they said to the wise virgins, well, give us some of your oil. And the wise virgins said, no, there's not enough for us and for you. You've got to go buy some oil. And so they left to buy the oil, but it's the middle of the night. 
What oil shopkeeper is going to be open that time of the night? Do they have the appropriate uh, crews that is necessary to gather the oil? Do they have their money with them? People who don't have oil just have no idea the trouble that is involved in getting oil for your lamp. And they foolishly think that they can put it off to that, that last day. And then the bridegroom comes and those who are ready are, go in with him. So one approach, <clears throat> it's a blessing to be afraid to die if it will get you to get your head out of the sand and say, I need to face this and I need to take care of it in the way that God prescribes. There are other people, it's a blessing to be afraid to die because there are other people who have the idea that death is just something like a flashbang grenade. So a flashbang grenade is a, a tool that is used by policemen or by um, people in the military when they want to take control of a room, but they don't want to kill everyone in there. If they want to kill everyone in there, then they'll just throw a, 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 a regular grenade that explodes and kills people. But if there are hostages in there and they want to get rid of the bad guys and save the lives of the hostages, they'll throw a flashbang in there. So there's a la big flash and then... Uh, a report off of that, and the concussion stuns, stuns you. And then the good guys come in with their guns and, and take control of the room. But there's no shrapnel in a, flash, in a flashbang. It's just boom, and then it's over with. And there are some people who think of death that way. They think, this is going to end all of my troubles. And so I'm, I'm sure that this is the thinking of many a person who commits suicide. There is no life on the other side of this. My life now is miserable, and so I'm just going to end it all and take care of it. But then on the other side of death, there, there opens up a, a, a vast chasm of eternity. <clears throat> if you only know one line from Shakespeare, you probably know to be or not to be. And that is from the play Hamlet, and Hamlet is thinking about committing suicide. So when he asks the question, to be or not to be, he is asking himself, should I kill myself and cease to exist, or should I still continue to live? And so he's, he, for the first several lines of that soliloquy, he's musing on, oh, how good it would be to be free from all of these burdens and just to go to sleep. And then a thought occurs to him, and he says, to sleep, perchance to dream. You see, he's been thinking about death as just ending it all. He, it's a peaceful sleep. He's no longer going to be troubled. But then it occurs to him, sometimes when you go to sleep, you have bad dreams. And so then he, <clears throat> he goes on to say, that's, that's why more people don't kill themselves, is because we are afraid of what is on the other side of death. And there is something on the other side of death. In Hebrews 9.27, we read, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. And so all of us will stand before God. Death is not just a flashbang. It is a blessing to be afraid to die in contrast to the view of the ostrich, to the view of the flashbang grenade, in contrast to another false view, 
And this could be represented as the table of trophies at a Little League Awards banquet. Everybody gets a trophy. All, all, if you just die, you're going to get a trophy. And so people who have lived scandalous lives and rebellion against the Lord, when they die, people will say, well, at least he's out of his misery now. At least he's at peace. It's like the default position. It's like you are automatically become a saint when you die. And that is just not true. Everybody doesn't get a happy eternal reward when they die. The Bible is very clear <clears throat> that on the other side of death, there is eternal separation from God for those who have not been united to God in life. There are unspeakable torments. The Bible just use, almost exhausts human vocabulary to describe the, the agonies of being separated from God. It is described as a lake of fire. It is described as outer darkness. It's described as a place where the worm does not die. It's described as a place where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And... Uh, Hell is real. Hell is a horrible place. You need to be afraid to die if you're going to hell. Because if you die and you have not made your peace with God through Jesus Christ, you are going to go to hell. And you will never, ever get out. The Bible says that the smoke of their torment rises up forever and forever. So death is not like the awards banquet at a little, league, a little League awards ceremony. Everybody doesn't get the trophy of eternal life. So it's good to be afraid to die if it brings you to your senses and realizes that you need help with what is coming. I've got one other false view of death and what lies on the other side of it that makes a being afraid to die a real blessing. That false view I'm going to represent by pouring pepper into your car's radiator. Now I think that some of you old people know what I'm talking about. Because back when we were young, if your radiator was leaking and you didn't want to put the money into getting the radiator fixed, you could fix it for a little while if you dumped one of those metal boxes of pepper into your radiator. So I guess that all the, the particles of the pepper would go into the cracks that were leaking and would stop it up for a little while. But you know, that's just a temporary fix. If you're really going to get your radiator fixed, then you probably are not going to learn how to do it on YouTube. It's amazing all the things that you can learn how to do on, on YouTube. <clears throat> But if I start watching a YouTube video on how to fix something, and it has me pulling the engine out of my car, then I'm just going to say, I can't do that. I need to get somebody else to do that. I, <clears throat> I thought, you know, it could be a clever evangelistic tool to post a YouTube video, how to earn your way into heaven. You click on that and it says, well, uh, I'm here from... Bullet Lick Baptist Church, and I want to tell you how to earn your way into heaven.
First of all, you've got to live a perfect life. Now that means that even when you were a little baby, you never had any rebellious fits. Uh, that means that uh, you never ever told a lie. It means that you always obeyed your parents. You never spoke one disrespectful word to your parents. You never cheated on a test. You never took anything that wasn't yours, even a little small thing like a piece of candy at a store. You never took anything like that. Uh, you never looked at pornography. You never uh, had a lustful thought towards someone. Uh, and so if you've done all these things perfectly, then you'll get to heaven on your own righteousness. Now, if you have failed on any one of these things, the Bible teaches that if you keep the whole law and you break it in just one respect, you're guilty of having broken all of it. And so I have uh, put forth another video to tell you how to get to heaven if you have failed on living a perfect life. You know, you, surely no one would be so silly as to look at that first video and say, yeah, I think I've got this. But I was, I was talking to someone on the phone yesterday, none of you know him, but he was on his way to visit his 99-year-old mother-in-law. And he said, the last time we were there, my wife said to her, Mom, are you ready to die? And she said, yes, I am. Why do you say that? Because of the life that I have lived. Because of the life that I have lived. And anyone who says something like that <clears throat> has not examined their lives in light of the requirements of God. You've heard me say it before, but I'll say it again. I would not trust the best 30 seconds that I've ever lived to get me into heaven. Because there's sin mixed up in everything that I think and do. And so, <clears throat> I, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to be able to fix this situation by pouring pepper in the radiator. But that's what a lot of people try to do with their lives and the mess that they're facing on the other side. I'm just going to live a good life. And for a little while, they might. They might plug up that radiator for a little while. But that plug is going to blow. And it will not get you into eternity. So it's a blessing to be afraid to die if you stop acting like an ostrich, if you stop thinking of death as a flashbang, if you stop thinking that you're going to get a trophy of eternal life when you die just because you died, if you get rid of the idea that somehow you're going to fix this yourself and you fall down on your knees before God and say, I can't do this. I need you to save me. Then the Lord will say something like, <clears throat> That's just exactly what I've been waiting to hear. That's just exactly the position that you need to be in. Now let me explain to you how I have provided a way so that you need no longer be held a slave by your fear of death. Your fear of death has led you to be a slave of, of foolishness and ignorance or maybe even religious, a religious life that is nothing more than slavery to legalism and you're never going to earn your way to heaven that way. So here is 
the other video. If you haven't lived this perfect life, then see this. And here's a way that you can live life without being afraid to die, and that is a blessing. Let's look at the, the provision that is made for people who are afraid to die. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. This provision that God has made through Jesus Christ was done legally. Legally. That is to say it was done in such a way that God's eternal principles of right and wrong were not violated. When God determined that He was going to forgive sinners, He knew that it couldn't be that He would merely pretend like a person had not sinned. There would have to be a just penalty paid for that person's sin. Now, the whole mess came about because the devil successfully tempted the first human representative to rebel against God. And that rebellion had lasting repercussions for the rest of the human race. So that as a result of that first sin, everyone who's born in the natural, normal, ordinary way is born a sinner born with a natural predisposition to rebel against God, not to cooperate with God. And so, because sin entered the world through one man, then sinful humans could be reclaimed by the work of one man, but he had to be a man. He couldn't just look like a man. He had to be a man with real flesh and blood. And so... When the time was right, then the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary conceived the Lord Jesus Christ. And He was fully God, but He was also fully man. He had flesh and blood. So that when He stood as a representative for humans, He was doing so legally as a human representative. So the provision that is made for the forgiveness of sins and to uh, take off the, the fear of death is a provision that has been made legally. But notice next that it was a provision that was made supernaturally. It says that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now when we start talking about the devil, then we're talking about supernatural beings and some of the rights and privileges that the devil earned through successfully, successfully luring humans into a state of rebellion against God. And uh, the, devil, the devil, because of his work, uh, because of his work, death has become something that is very fearful. Yeah. But it's because of the devil, because of the work that the devil has done. And so when Jesus is providing a rescue for sinners, he had to do so in a way that, that destroyed the devil. 
Now, the devil has not ceased to exist. As far as I know, uh, neither angels nor humans can cease to exist. So what this means is that the power that the devil has to exercise, the right that the devil has to exercise power over humans is broken through the work of Jesus for everyone who receives Jesus. <clears throat> Satan is no longer able to boss you around. Satan is no longer to keep you in rebellion against God. This, this kind of work was done on a supernatural level when, when Jesus goes to war against, against uh, the, the powers of darkness and he, he defeats them so thoroughly that just like, just like a Roman conqueror would have a parade where he dragged the conquered generals behind him, the Bible describes that Jesus did something like that, that after he had triumphed over them by the cross, he led the enemies of his people in triumphal procession, showing that they had been stripped of their power. I don't know if it has ever struck you how, how scanty the description of Christ's crucifixion, the physical descriptions, how scanty they are. You could easily fit them on half a page. And arguably the most important event in the history of humanity, and you could, you could fit the physical description of it on less than half a page. Why is it that uh, the biblical writers give so little attention to the physical agonies that Jesus was going through? I think it's for this very reason, because the main battle was going on in the supernatural realm where you couldn't see what was going on. There Jesus was defeating the powers of darkness. Jesus was destroying the power of Satan and all of the rights that he had snatched through luring humans into rebellion against God. So the, the deliverance that is offered is a deliverance that is legal. It is a deliverance that is supernatural. And then one more thing that I want to point out to you, it was a deliverance that satisfied God. Look at what it says in verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. <clears throat> propitiation is a word that has several components to it. There are several components in the conception of propitiation. The first component is <clears throat> that there is someone who has done something that is wrong and a God is angry about it. So this is a word that appears not just in Christianity but in other religions where you know, there, there are gods who get aggravated at what humans do. So there's someone who's done something wrong, there is a God who is angry, and then something is done to satisfy the God's anger so that he's no longer angry at the person who did the offending thing. In Christianity, this is how it works. God's chosen people fell along with the rest of, of the human race and fell under God's condemnation. The Bible says that he who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. The Bible says that we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And so we, we were born under a curse, 
And uh, while it is true that God loved us with an everlasting love in some mysterious way, God was also angry with us because of our sin. But then the Lord Jesus Christ steps in as an atoning sacrifice. And as God, you might think of it, as God is about to pour out the torrent of His wrath upon His people, the Lord Jesus Christ steps in between and says, Father, punish me in their place. And of course, this was all in accordance with God's plan. This wasn't Jesus' idea, so to speak, but the the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all in agreement that this is the way that that the Lord's chosen people would be delivered from death and brought into fellowship with the Lord. And so in my illustration, I hope I don't give the idea that God really wanted to smash us, but Jesus intervened and saved us at the last minute. No, Jesus is doing the Father's will when he steps in and says, here I am. I've come to do your will. And then the Bible says that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid on him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so God, in his justice, poured out the penalty for sin, which was death, upon his son, who on the cross became a substitute. And God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God is satisfied with the provision that Jesus has made. It was legal, it was supernatural, it was pleasing to the Father. Isaiah chapter 53 says, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Now my question for you this morning is, are you satisfied with it? Many of you in this room, most of you can say, Oh yes, I'm so satisfied with Jesus. But there are some of you in here today who have never closed with Christ. You've never never received Christ. You ought to be afraid of death. You ought to be so afraid of death that even now you pray in your heart and say, Oh God, I don't want to go to hell. Do whatever is necessary to save me from the second death. If I knew that I had to die this afternoon, I would be utterly terrified. Save me through Jesus. I'm satisfied with Jesus. I see that what he did on the cross was satisfactory to your justice and it was satisfying to you. The devil has no claim over those who lay hold of Jesus Christ. Oh God, give me faith. Help me to to believe in Jesus. There's much that I don't understand, much that I hope that you'll teach me, but right now, with all that I can, I'm receiving Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And if you do that, then you will never need to be afraid of death again. Because Jesus says, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has, present tense, has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. 
outside the tomb of Lazarus, Martha came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus says, whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. Yes, Lord, said Martha, I know that he will live at the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said, I believe that you're the Christ who was to come into the world. <clears throat> he who lives and believes in me will never die. You will not be hurt by the second death. One day your body will cease to function, but you will not die. Your body will be put in a grave or maybe burned in a fire or maybe dissolved in an ocean or some other way, but if you belong to Jesus, then one day even that very body will be resurrected. This mortal must put on immortality. And she'll be brought to pass the saying that death is swallowed up in victory. But when a person dies, his soul does not go to sleep. Her soul does not go into some kind of neutral holding place. Jesus said to, be, to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. The Apostle Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We need to see this thing with the big picture. One day you're going to die. But on the other side of that is a never-ending eternity where you will spend forever in either heaven or in hell. And so I plead with you today, while it's still called today, repent of your sin and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. I've asked Max to uh, sing a song at the end. We don't know this song. I hope that uh, we'll learn it sometime soon. But listen carefully to the words. It explains why we do not need to be afraid of death if we are in covenant with God through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> 